In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Betches Moms, with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to the Betches Moms podcast. I'm Brittany. And I'm Aileen. And today, we are joined by registered dietitians and co-authors of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Amy Severson and Sumner Brooks. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. We are so excited to have you. We're so excited to talk to you. I personally, I've read the Intuitive Eating book several times. Um, I talk about, a lot about that on um, our other podcast, Diets Are Tomorrow, so I've always, now that, you know, we have kids, I'm excited to hear, and Brittany and I are excited to hear, like, how do you then raise an intuitive eater? Um, but maybe before we get into that, can you tell us, like, how you got in into even, what's your background? How did you start? How do you yeah. get into this? Sure. Um, I am, I've been a dietitian for about 15 years and almost all of that time I've specialized in helping people heal their relationships with food and body and eating disorder recovery. Uh, prior to that, I lived most of my life until my mid twenties, um, battling with different variations of disordered eating, um, and, you know, I think I became so interested in helping people heal their relationship with food because of kind of the torment and what I just, I know what it takes away from people. Um, after working with, you know, so many people behind closed doors and then becoming a mom myself, um, the passion is really just kind of grown to wanting to make sure that parents know everything that, that they need to know about what they can do. We can't control outcomes, of course, but it's so important to me to help parents understand um, what they can do to help support their kids with a healthy relationship with food. So um, long kind of answer to your question, but I've worked mostly one-on-one -on -one with people doing this and have been mentored under Elise Resch, who's the co-author of Intuitive Eating. So what is Intuitive Eating? Intuitive eating is a way of approaching eating without having all of the noise and clutter of diet culture and diet mentality, food rules, good and bad foods, interfering with your food decisions. So instead of being directed by all of this external information and rules, intuitive eating helps people connect back to um, their internal signals, their body wisdom, how they're feeling their natural hunger and satiety signals and directing them to eat in a way that is much more free and um, doesn't bring along all of this guilt and shame associated with it that dieting mentality does. And it's, and just to c clear up, like, cause I feel like uh, Instagram and social media has like co-opted intuitive eating into like so many different things. And it's not really just like this way of eating where you just eat whatever you want. It is truly a, a healing tool for disordered eating. Am I can you correct me if I'm wrong with that? No, absolutely. So intuitive eating, you know, if, if you read it as it's written in the book, um, incorporates 10 different principles. It's not step-by-step -step rules. It does not look the same for everyone, but there have been a wide range of studies now looking at the use of intuitive eating in eating disorder recovery and treatment. And so it's, it is a validated tool to include in eating disorder recovery, as well as helping anyone who wants to sort of return to this more natural, peaceful way of eating. Got it. Okay. So now, how, do, how does one now actually raise an intuitive eater? Getting down to it. <laughs> I mean, that's a big question, but 
the question, I guess, for for this particular book. I think it's really important to, to remember and hold that every most people are born intuitive eaters. There's very few exceptions to that rule. And we our role as parents isn't to shift anyone's relationship with food to um, it, it impose any external rules. It's to foster and continue to allow that relationship to grow in a world that's trying to tamp it down. And so that's what raising intuitive intuitive eater is. It's helping them keep that trust and that safety in food and in their relationship with food, despite everything else going around on around them. So like not imposing like rules these sort of like external rules on them and the way that they're eating. And I'm sure though that <laughs> we've lived in like a very diety uh, society or like, I, I mean, at least I, I have. And it was like, okay. And there was everywhere. All, at our moms definitely always going on diets. There's always the non-fat phase. There's the, all of that. And so now this, where your hope is to the next generation of kids sort of you know, clear out that noise. So how do parents go about that having maybe grown up in that type of households? So we've distilled kind of the how-to part of this down into our model that in the book we call the three keys to raising an intuitive eater. And the three keys are, number one, is to provide unconditional love and support for your child's body. And when we really go into that, we're helping parents to understand how important it is um, to have to really express and help your child feel a sense of acceptance and appreciation for their here and now body. Because I think so many parents get caught in the trap of believing that for one reason or another, it is their responsibility to mold their child's body or to change their child's body or prevent their child's body from being maybe the way that it's naturally designed to be or any different than it is right now. Um, So that's key one. The second key is implementing a flexible and reliable feeding routine. Um, The big kind of crux of this one is that we know that kids need a sense of trust and safety that they're going to have enough food to eat, that they're not going to be deprived of food or restricted of food. And anything from living through food insecurity to um, being restricted certain foods for more diet rules, any of those things can really create um, an anxiety and a sense of a lack of trust that kids are going to be able to get enough. So the feeding routine is the way that parents really go about um kind of executing this unconditional permission to eat, which you may remember is such a foundational piece of intuitive eating. We all need to feel like we're going to have enough and that we're allowed to have enough. And then the third key is called develop and use your own intuitive eating voice. And this is really the the way that parents convey um, intuitive eating mindset. It's the way that we talk about food. It's the way that we talk about bodies. And it's also the things that we do non-verbally, so that non-verbal communication and just giving a sense of that your child's body is allowed to be the way that it is and that we're kind of deconstructing all of this, you know, body bashing that's happening in the world around us. So there's a lot there, but those are, those are the three big keys. So how do you go about, I guess, uh, for somebody who re- who has, and I know Aileen is is very well versed with intuitive eating but for somebody who's like this is this is like really new for me so now somebody who's not an intuitive eater I don't know how to follow that myself how would you tell a parent to start doing this for themselves first we started the book off with one a description of what intuitive eating is and what diet culture is and then we before going into what the keys are and how to implement this for your children, we really wanted to talk about how to implement this for yourself and how to um, kind of break the cycle of generational dieting, which is kind of yeah. its own form of generational trauma. And mm-hmm. it's I, because with any type of parenting, you know, when you're learning a new thing for parenting, it really is some degree of 
um, faking it till you make it a little bit, you know, like faking being okay in your body, faking being okay with food and like kind of holding back some of those comments like, oh my God, that's so much candy or whatever those like fear-based comments that tend to come up are. And the more we kind of lean into that and the more we can fake it, as we slowly build that trust within ourselves, um, we can start to actually believe it and live it and have that for our kids as well. Um, Because we really believe in modeling, modeling as a parent, what we want our kids to embody, what what, what we want our kids to see from us as one of the most important things we can do as parents, because they're always gonna learn more from what we do and how we behave toward ourselves and other people than they are from the conversations we have with them and sit down and have like, you know, the heart to heart talk. And that starts with us beginning to look at our own relationship with food and where our shoulds are, where our rules are, where our fears are. And it's a, it's, it's, I think this little distilled little bit makes it sound really maybe simple, but it's, it is a pretty complicated little thing because it's been part of our lives for so many people for so long. And which is one of the reasons why we wrote this book, because we don't want to have, you know, these kids have to go through the same thing that all of us went through. And this complicated little relationship to unravel is um, a really powerful one to change. So a big part of it that we describe is like the status quo. And that's kind of this like, all the information that parents get, like whether it's from doctors or from magazines or from the media or from other parents. And the status quo is like how we are conditioned as parents to think that we should do certain things around food with kids to help them be quote healthy eaters. And that's, you know, constantly you're hearing this when you're around other parents, but it's the sugar conversations. It's, oh my gosh, no, you've had, you've had too much of that. Or now, you know, we're in for a crazy night now. The kids are all in a sugar high or it's, you know, very strict rules about what's allowed either in classrooms or in homes. It's parents who are overly obsessed with reading food labels, all of this has become the status quo because our culture is so obsessed with healthy eating and dieting, even though a lot of parents would never consider what they're doing to be dieting. They, they never even think that what they're doing is projecting dieting mentality onto their kids because it's so incredibly normalized in our culture to be thinking this way about food. So we try to really help parents unpack like their own, you know, day-to-day behaviors of what they're doing that can be conveyed and um, really misunderstood by kids. And it takes a lot of unlearning for all of us to really see what we're doing and how maybe how often and how much we really are projecting dieting onto kids without even realizing it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So when you, like, for instance, the, you know, toddlers are very much into their snacks. They want snacks all the time. They don't, usually it's the cookies or something that might not, that has like high sugar or whatever. If your kid just wants one snack after the other, are you not supposed to be limiting that? Or what's the proper thing to say? Because typically I would be like, you just ate three snacks. We're not eating any more snacks. So what... Am I doing the wrong thing by saying that? I think that there's a, um, 
That's a really common question, actually. I want to like name that. It's so <laughs> common um, because it really falls back to that reliable feeding routine that Sumner was talking about earlier because snacks are fine. Like there's nothing wrong with snacks. We have no problem with snacks and having them be a reliable part of a kid's day means that they know that a snack is coming and cookies can absolutely be part of that. Um, yeah. What we can yeah. do as parents is have that, like, I wouldn't say you're doing the wrong thing because you're doing what you're doing and it's totally fine. Um, and the routine that we can start to have is, and the kind of structure and boundaries we can set as parents is kind of, well, we had just had a meal and you're still hungry, you probably need some more food or, you know, but if it's 20 minutes to dinner time, and this is something my eight-year-old does a lot, 20 minutes to dinner is asking for a snack. And that's a fine time to be like, no, we're going to wait until dinner comes out. Um, but if it's two or three hours from a meal, that's still a fine time to have a more, to have more of a snack. Right. right. Yeah. We also emphasize something called an add-in pressure off approach, where I think, you know, when you kind of... When you dive a little deeper into some of these questions, you realize that what parents are really afraid of is, oh, is my kid eating too much of the wrong thing? Is this going to be bad for them? And so, number one, we have to really acknowledge, um, you know, the hard facts and evidence that we know about the psychology of eating. And that if parents sort of pick out certain foods that they are going to say no to or restrict to or limit the amounts of, there is very likely to be a kind of compensatory behavior when a child picks up on there are certain foods that I'm not allowed to have all the time or there are certain foods that my parents um, get a little anxious about me eating. I mean, of course, that's not how the kid thinks about it, but they <laughs> notice, you know, they are incredibly sensitive to what kind of sparks our, our curiosity or gets us a little bit riled up. So if kids notice that certain foods are being treated differently than other foods, what's most likely to happen is they are going to be more interested in those foods. So it's really important for parents to understand that, you know, what we're not saying is like every snack should just be gummy bears because if your kid wants gummy bears, then every single snack is gummy bears and that's fine. What we're saying is thinking about adding and offering a wide variety of foods, foods that you believe are, you know, nourishing and satisfying and work for your family, but don't treat gummy bears differently than strawberries. Because what we know is that there's going to be kind of this um, higher interest in the food that is restricted or off limits. And that is one of the ways, because there's many ways, but that's one of the ways that there begins to be this disruption in our natural intuitive eating is when things are off limits and restricted. What are um, other examples of things that people might be saying that are actually like internalized diet culture, whether or not they know it or not. Like just maybe the red flags. I think the good one is the, is this too much sugar? Is this, is this um, healthy? Is this bad? Is like, those are really obvious ones that we've already kind of mentioned. Obviously there's also for me, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but I do this a lot is um, like the fears of what body size will, will do. Like, is this going to make my child bigger? Is this going to make me bigger? Um, uh, how will this change my weight? Things like that are very related to diet culture. Like what's something, what's something someone might say? Like, oh, you'll, you'll gain weight from this? Like something yeah, like that? Like, too much of this will make you gain weight. Um, this, a lot, a lot of the phrases I hear are like, this is bad. This is, this is, mm-hmm. I'm so bad for eating this. Um that's too many, a, carbs. too many carbs. This is a special food. Um, you know, th- things that put put it in a category that's not every day, not not normalized, not just as neutral as lettuce. Calling foods junk, you know, that's a really common one. Yeah, I feel like a big one for me is like, no, there's too much sugar in that. We're not eating sugar right now. And I don't even realize that I say that, but it's just because it might be after dinner and I know that it makes him a little hyper. But so kind of going towards that, though, it's like I still don't want him to have lollipops and gummy bears every day for like every single snack. So, you know, what is a proper way to say to him, you know, no, we're not going to have that. We're going to have the strawberries without making without giving him a complex about it. 
This is something that we have, my daughter and I have these conversations a lot because she's in the phase of wanting to buy something every time we go to any store and it, she knows that the cheapest thing to buy is usually a candy bar. So that's what she's asking for. Um, but if we just bought a bag of cookies or we just bought a bag of candy, um, I will generally say like, well, not right now. We're not going to get this right now. Um, and having this, we're not going to have this now, but it will be available later. This, you can have it tomorrow. You can have it later. Um, and not like perpetually putting it off, but actually following through with that. When you say the candy will be there tomorrow, we can, next time we come to the store, you can get this candy bar. Um, and then following through because it creates a trust that you actually are going to allow them to have this food and the food is normal, but there is like, uh, everything from like social boundaries around food. Like I don't let my kid buy candy at Joanne fabrics because it's insanely expensive there. Um, but if we're going to go to the grocery store, she can get a candy bar at the grocery store. Um, and, or timing or like we just bought a bunch of Halloween candy that we're going to eat at home. We don't need to get a candy bar too. As a, the need we don't need to isn't we don't do that because it's bad for us but we have enough like and you can have some of that what if they say why like why can't i have it why why not right now like why are you telling me i need to replace this with celery (laughs) so yeah so these are such good questions because it gets into you know really how complicated this feels in the real world with with parents um so number one is to help I do want parents to think about their real reason. Why are you saying no? Is it because you're afraid of this food or you wouldn't allow yourself to eat it or because you're afraid of your child gaining weight? Or is it because we're going to have dinner in half an hour because we've already had a snack because I've packed another snack and I'm not going to buy this one for you? Um, So parents do really need to, for themselves, answer that question. Why is it? Is it because of diet mentality and I'm trying to, you know, over control what my child is eating? Um, If so, then I would actually encourage a parent to try to loosen up a little bit. Can we have gummy bears for a snack? Is that something that's super uncomfortable and difficult for a parent to do? If so, it's probably an important area of work for them to kind of move through and have some more permission. If it's about other things, logistics, money, or like a lot of times my kids will be whining for something. And that's one of my values, parenting values, is like I'm not rewarding whining. So the answer is no. We're not having that right now. That's not how we ask for things. We're having a snack when we get home. It's absolutely, not only is it okay, but it's critical that parents have a confident sense, confidence sense of um why they're answering a food request a certain way. It's a big Mm -hmm. part of the work for parents because that also gets communicated and that's felt by the child. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What about sharing information about like nutrition like I know gentle nutrition is part of intuitive eating because it's not all about just eat whatever you want it's really incorporating knowledge of nutrition what is nutrient dense or what is nutritious and promoting those foods but not making them any better than other foods right so how do you introduce that information to a kid so that they can make those decisions on their own um, I think age appropriate nutrition is really important. And that's actually something that a lot of our okay. education system gets wrong. 
um, like for, I don't remember the age range of Sumner, you remember when it's appropriate to start introducing? Yeah, it's for younger kids, elementary kids and younger, it really is important to start with like peppers are red, you know, red bell peppers are red, strawberries are red, um, and keeping it like this is a fruit at like just basic, super normative facts like that. Um, but we introduce, we tend to introduce as a society, like the ideas of sugar and calories and protein and carbs really early. And that's technically even for the most like diet minded of like entities is pretty age inappropriate nutrition. And it's, it's stuff that they can take and it can, that can alter their relationship with food. So that age appropriate nutrition is really important. And as they get older and get closer to that middle school age is when, you know, we can start to talk about protein. And a lot of times in this diety world, we do have to give counter um, education to what is given in like health classes and stuff. So we can have, have those conversations of like, yeah, this is, these are protein foods and protein is good for us. These are carb foods and carbs are good for us. Um, normalizing that like, a, a carb is just as important for us as a protein. A vegetable is just as important important for us as a fruit. Um, those are like the, the truths. And in intuitive eating, we can look at them and see them all neutrally um, to kind of counter some of that more diety messaging they may get. I think that parents often want to know, like, how do I teach my child? Kind of back to your initial question. And we can think about it in a different way, which is like, we don't actually have to teach kids about nutrition. That actually comes from diet culture. What we want to do is teach our kids how to cook, teach them how to like have a lot of different eating experiences, have variety. We want to help pass down the culture of food that resonates with us. So it's eating experiences. It's having really positive food environments at home, wanting to... Um, you know, really promote that kids come to the table willingly at mealtimes, if that's how your family eats at a table, but it's that mealtime is a positive thing and that there's not arguing about food or fighting about food or a lot of pressure, you know, any kind of pressure on kids to eat, that doesn't feel good in their bodies. That actually creates a more shutdown response of the nervous system. It doesn't make them want to try things that are offered and available. So I think there's been so much emphasis that parents naturally have this question, how do I teach my kids about nutrition? And what I would actually encourage them to think about is how can we have really positive eating experiences with kids from the beginning and get them interested in food and interested in growing food or cooking food and sharing food? Okay. That's actually very interesting that like the need to teach kids about nutrition is really from like a diet, a diet mentality and I never thought of it that way um yeah what about what about like dessert because I've heard for like as a into the one thing that I've heard (laughs) about um you know raising kids and intuitive eating is that you don't want to make dessert like this thing on a pedestal you don't want to save it as a special treat at the end of a meal like you want to offer it or at least I've heard Elise say that offer it to your kid as you can even give it to them at this on the same like with the vegetables and a lot of the time they'll choose the vegetables. Is that like real? (laughs) Like where, how how do you um, convince people that that's actually a thing? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so they've researched this and looked at this. It's called habituation. So when things are really normalized and offered consistently, um, then you know, we have to go back and recognize that human beings have an internal drive to seek out balance in our bodies, homeostasis. To keep our blood sugar balanced is something that we are naturally subconsciously designed to do. We don't have to think about it. So, you know, you'll notice yourself, if you had cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even if it was the most delicious cake in the world, are you going to want to have cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner the next day? Probably not. It probably, mm-hmm. because it probably, you wouldn't have the appetite for it. It wouldn't feel so good. That's what I see in kids all the time is that truly when there is no restriction and deprivation, 
they absolutely follow the course of how we are naturally designed to seek out a variety of foods. Um, so that takes some time. When kids have been raised in an environment where there's a lot of you know, special foods and food is, certain foods are really put on a pedestal, it certainly will take a period of time for that stuff to calm down before they're kind of viewing foods as all food are emotionally equal again. Does that answer that question? I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to ask kind of like what you were talking about towards the end of that is, is there a point where it's kind of too late to switch how what you've already taught your child? I don't think there's a point where it's too late. I think there's a point where it becomes more the work that they have to do um, versus the work that we can help facilitate as parents. And that's like early adulthood, late teenage years. But as kids, as when, no matter what age of kids they are, I don't think there's a point where it's too late. It's just a matter of how much unteaching we kind of have to do as parents. Um, the younger, the less we have to kind of unlearn for ourselves and unlearn for them. Um, but it can happen at any age. Um, I, I probably started introducing intuitive eating to my kid when she was about three-ish. And there's still little bits of it that kind of come up. Like we have to have occasional conversations about how dessert, the word is like this, the meal or the snack you have after dinner is literally just the snack you have after dinner. And it doesn't mean like, that's the only time you get cake. It's the only time you get ice cream. Um, and occasionally we have to, you know, have that conversation again. And because she learned that early, that dessert was a special thing that you only got every once in a while. Um, but she knows now that it's a snack, just... Sometimes it gets a little muddled by everything else around us. I just think, you know, the reality is that as people, this is all, um, you know, all very emotional. So our relationship with food and our relationship with our body is incredibly emotional and layered. And even if I were to think about, you know, an adult child being around their parent who maybe the parent expressed diet mentality, um, for their whole life. And if that adult child um, begins to have experiences around their parent after 30, 40 years, and their parent is undoing their diet mentality, and their parent stops commenting on bodies or commenting about food, even that alone for that adult child is going to have a profound impact on them. Mm -hmm. It is never too late um, this stuff runs so deep and it matters to us so much what our primary caregivers express to us about our worth and our bodies and our eating behaviors um, that at any point that a parent is ready to change, it's going to have a profound impact on their child, I think. So speaking of body image, you just mentioned that. Let's talk about that because I feel like that's a huge part of all of this. How does body image or comments about body play into having a good relationship with food for children? I think it's one of the most, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about is helping your child have a healthy body image, um, pulling away from fatness is bad, um, we use fat as a very neutral descriptor in our house and talk about how it's just as bad to say bad things about fatness as it is to say bad things about other religions or other races. Um, because it's just a thing that we all are because it's so important. I, I feel like we can't, we can't experience a full, the full range of the relationship we can have with food, the full amazing, like healthy, happy relationship we can have with food if we don't also have that same ability to explore that relationship with our body. Um, because the more afraid we are as adults or even as kids of what our body is going to do if we allow ourselves to eat food, the fear of how our body's going to change, um, if there is a fear at all of being too big, of being um, wrong in any way in your body, then we can't trust that we can be okay with eating food. And that trust is so crucial 
the trust that we can be okay and the trust that our body is going to be okay. So fostering that relationship is so incredibly important um, and hard in a world that constantly fights us on that. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do you talk, like, how do you talk about, like, if you, if you grew up in a, again, a family where people, and even people still talk about their bodies, like my mom comes over constantly and is talking about like, you know, weight loss. <laughs> um, that's just, you know, fun chats. How um, do you, and she's not the only one, like there's lots of people. Um, how do you, I mean, I know you're, you're not supposed to sort of like put your child in this bubble of like, this is, doesn't happen. So how do you, A, talk about yourself or talk about their body and B, how do you not shield, but how do you talk to your kid about the fact that they might encounter these kinds of conversations? So our kids are being taught so early. I think a lot of it's coming from the school environment about what bodies Mm -hmm. are good and what bodies need to change. Um, So, you know, as young as kindergarten or preschool, they're starting to learn about this. Um, I recommend that parents put some real attention um, and intentionality behind clearing up um, things that they're learning. So um, if you hear a joke about a fat body or a fat cartoon character, that you take a moment and tell them what you believe to be true, what your family values are, that um, that body is not something to make fun of, that all bodies look different and we can celebrate and respect all bodies, big bodies, small bodies, disabled bodies, whatever they are. I don't think that it's the one-time conversation that makes a difference. I think it's the repeated exposure to these truly are my values as a parent because that's how we instill values into kids is over time with repetition. So with a lot of clear, um, kind and open conversation, I think we need to be careful to not shame kids for something that they might say about a body um, that can be very sensitive to that. And that can actually shut them down to like staying open and hearing us. Um, So we have to understand through their lens, they've already begun to be conditioned into this culture. And yeah, we've got to put a lot of our own attention into undoing it from as early of an age as we can. I use the words like that we love all of these different bodies. You know, we, we truly do. We love people because of who they are, not because of what body they're in. I think that's one way to talk about it. You can call Mm -hmm. out, you know, um, discrimination when you see it, when your child's exposed to it, you can let them know that's wrong. That's not okay. That's not respectful. Things like that. Exposure to those bodies too is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's through people, you know, that, and that you, you know, have a good relationship with, or if you can find the rare examples that exist in media of positive examples of people in larger bodies. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that goes for any diversity you want to introduce because diversity, body diversity is normal. And the more we can instill that in our kids as a normal, not indicator of character thing, the, the better off they're going to be with their own body. And I also think it's important to, like you, you mentioned, like when a parent, like you, one of your parents comes over and talks about, yeah. grandparents come grandparents, over and talk yeah. about, you know, <laughs> body image or talk about, or friends do. You, you can't shield them from it forever. Um, I think it can be really important to make sure it's known that the value you have for your child is that they are not talked down to about their body at any point. Because we can build that resilience, which is what Sumner is talking about, is the resilience of being able to exist in a world that's constantly talking down about bodies. And we can help unpack that constantly. Um, and that can help with the general population kind of talking negatively about bodies in general, or even like closer people like grandparents talking negatively about bodies in general. But the thing that we can and probably have to put our focus on if we have to put our energy anywhere in that relationship is to make sure that 
any of any family member, any person who is a trusted, close, loving member of this of your kid's family, um, they never talk negatively about the, their body. They never talk negatively about your child's body um, mm-hmm. or food or make comments about their food or their body other than like neutral facts. Like you are eating food. You are right. doing this right. physical mm-hmm. activity without, you know, putting a moral value on those things. And that can be hard to do as a parent. Well, it's hard and it's not, and you're not always successful with it either. Like, you I mean, we just can't control. They don't get it. We can't control <laughs> what people are going to. Do they don't, and that can be just yeah. having those conversations. Like, hey, like gra- grandma's going to do this, and we don't agree with grandma on this thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we speak to our caretake, our children's caretakers or grandparents, about making sure that they try to keep those comments to themselves? And what are ways? Because you know, a lot, and this kind of goes with a lot of other things that we're kind of learning as this generation of parents that our parents didn't do to kind of like undo what they did, but how do we kind of help them to see how we see it? I think, you know, getting into these conversations with like the mindset of like, all right, this person might not agree with me. And the more I can kind of come across with like, this is an invitation for you to learn, but it's also like, hey, why is this so important to me? So telling them why it matters to you, I think is some, is like a good way to lead so that you can kind of get them to like soften a little bit and hear you out. Um, saying things like, you know, no one's expected to be perfect, but here's a couple things that I would really appreciate or that really matter to our family or um, that I, that are non-negotiable, you know, for my child, for example, like not telling my child what they need to eat or making them finish any of their food. That's something that is really important to me. So being clear, I think, um, and also like not entering into it with like a, I know more than you, or I'm right, you're wrong, that it's not a fight, but it's like, this is important to me and here's why. And I'd really like you to understand. Do you have any questions? Mm-hmm. What are like going back to like things that, you know, you shouldn't say around our kids that you may not realize are could be hurting them in the long um, run? Like what are some comments that you could be saying about yourself, too? Because I think that's also a lot. They're like staring at you while you're looking at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> um, what what are like actions or sayings that you could try to curb or be more aware of? I think when you see pictures of yourself, not saying, ugh. Like not, you know, not really being harsh and critical to yourself out loud, even though, you know, that's not someone's fault for having that thought. You know, we're all human here. But like noticing if that's how I'm communicating about myself to my child, you know, they're going to they're going to do that to themselves. And we would never want them to do that to their own body. So let's try not to model something. And I think one thing I hear a lot is when like um, I, when I see like adult children who have heard their parents talk negatively like oh I, I got to this size and oh I can't believe I got to this size it's the worst thing ever and then the kid is like but I I was that size like or I am that size now like how can they how can you tell me that they don't aren't judging me for that um exactly yeah sorry I know that, that <laughs> resonates like, so much because it's I like oh my god yeah. <laughs> um and those yeah. are the things like we don't even realize we've like uh, parents don't realize they've done that like they're not trying to to put that judgment on their kids and they're it very rarely even applies directly to their kids and remembering that they hear it all and they are making those comparisons they um because they are like everyone else is making those comparisons too like oh you look so much like your mom or you do this like your mom or your dad and knowing that they are going to make that comparison too is really important. And the more we can just the fake until we make it, if you have those feelings, if those things are coming up for you, keep it in as much as possible, spend less time looking at yourself in front of the mirror and hating it. Um, less judgments out loud to ourselves. If we can do that, um, it's hard, but, remembering yeah. that they hear it all and yeah. anything you would hate for you to hear your kids say to, to themselves maybe is one to kind of pull back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of parents talking about 
like the common stuff, you know, it's like cheat days or like I'm I'm being so bad today or, you know, we were at a Super Bowl thing last weekend and this mom was like, oh, come on, you can have a cupcake just once. It's just, it's Super Bowl Sunday. You know, it's it's all of that stuff. So, you know, start. I would say for parents, just start to take a little bit of a pause before you say what's on the tip of your tongue and just think about like, is this, is this a negative body comment? Um, or does this instill fear of food or give the message that a certain food is bad? Why are we giving kids a plate of cupcakes to celebrate someone's birthday if we're all sitting here saying how bad it is? It's quite mm-hmm. the confusing message. What if, though, like there's I'm sure parents listening and they're like, oh, my kid, I took my kid to the doctor. The doctor says my kid's overweight. How am I supposed to talk to my child about that? What am I supposed to do? First thing is, this is a hard one. And as you're able and comfortable to do so, keep those conversations away from your kid with the doctor. Cause I also can't tell you how many, how many okay. clients I've seen, how many experiences I had where I, or they heard the doctor say those things and internalized it. And that started a lot of stuff for them. Um, that can be one that's, it's one of those age inappropriate yeah. conversations, honestly, that we can have in, independently with it, with a provider. Um, and if they do hear it, or if you are concerned about it, um, one thing to, to unlearn is body diversity, um, in, or to learn in general is body diversity. Uh, kids are allowed to be bigger. We're allowed to be bigger. The goal of a lot of these BMI requirements of kids even is to ha- to create like normal quote unquote sized adults. And if we have adults of all sizes, we're also going to have kids of all sizes and there's nothing wrong with that. And we're also going to have kids who aren't maybe as interested in sports or don't enjoy them, aren't good at them, but are like loved art, love to read, love to do more, maybe sedentary, but that's their thing. And we are, they're allowed to have those things just like we are as adults. Um, And as long as you are like kind of going down this intuitive eating path, you are, offering all different kinds of foods, you are normalizing the foods and you are supporting the activities they want to do and you're supporting their mental health in all these ways. You're doing a lot to raise a really healthy, strong, resilient kid. And that's sometimes the best we can do. But when so much but when so much is so or so many people or everyone are, are telling us, especially doctors, that we do need to be moving, and it isn't just for our body image; it's also for our mental health. How do we teach that to our kids without making them feel like, oh, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be healthy? Because, I mean, am I wrong to say that? kids do need to be moving? Is that something I need to unlearn? I don't know. I don't know what's right or wrong anymore. (laughs) I think it's a lot more gray than it's expressed. It's expressed as very black and white, you know, down to the number of minutes per day that kids need to be moving. And actually in the physical activity section of our book, we really dove into the research around at what point are there health benefits of physical activity for kids? And the health benefits were seen at around eight minutes per day. But they decided to make the requirement like 60 minutes per day or a certain number of minutes spread out over the week. So the research really doesn't match up with the recommendations. They overextended the recommendations. So right off the get-go, parents are feeling insecure about how much my child is moving. Is it enough? I don't think anybody here is going to question the fact that movement of our bodies is helpful and healthy and supportive for our bodies. The problem is when we begin to overjudge or shame or criticize a child for not moving correctly or not moving enough for almost everyone that is absolutely tied to fat phobia. And that message also then gets dispersed down to the child. They know what you're talking about because they're learning about it in school too, that if their body's bigger, their body is bad. Um, So it's this whole picture that's created. um, And then it becomes very black and white. 
the parents feel anxious, and then it creates this worry cycle. If kids are feeling pressured to, quote, exercise, that has nothing to do with fun or joy or pleasurable movement. So the positive way that we can help kids is, again, by just um, seeing every child as an individual. What is enjoyable, pleasurable, helpful for my child as a unique kid? Maybe not for the kid next door. What is my child like to do? Um, And how can we kind of build that into our family in a positive way? Maybe a routine change might be something that someone thinks they want to do, but can can we kind of make a shift maybe gradually over time or slowly or gently without it being something that we're really pressuring a child to do. Right. And also I'm sure they look at to you to see like what you do. So if you're not moving or you're not prior to prioritizing it in a way that that's like healthy, like not, and by healthy, I mean, you're not saying like, Oh, I need to move to lose weight because we need to exercise and blah, blah, blah. I need to burn calories. As long as you're speaking it in a way that like is promoting just movement um, they're looking at, I'm assuming us to say, oh, mom does it. Like I could do it. Yeah. Right? There's a huge difference in watching your parent make themselves go to the gym or make themselves go for a run every day or else they feel bad about their body. Um, compared to knowing that your parent engages in some kind of movement because they love it because it helps them Mm -hmm. and it helps their mood and it just makes them happy. And so I know that there's a lot of adults and probably people listening who don't have that kind of relationship with movement. It doesn't make them happy. They do it because they feel like they have to. And that absolutely is a a little flag popping up for people to say like, what would, what would it really take to think about moving your body for joy and for pleasure and also for strength building. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel strong and have cardiovascular fitness. Absolutely. Those are fine things, but we need to take another look at how we're talking about this and how we're instilling this kind of shame and rigidity and because kids and kids take that on and and you know, Amy and I have seen hundreds of kids, if not thousands, who are exercising in secret in their room because they're afraid that they have too much fat on their body and they're trapped inside of a deadly eating disorder. Yeah, that's relatable. Um, Well, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us today. Can you, so it's all of this information, like what people, what you should focus on, things you should say or shouldn't say. Is that all in the book? Yeah, it's all in the book. I'll, um, yeah. <laughs> that's it's great. a really so, it's a really robust book it's full full of facts full of stories full of resources that's awesome and it's called how to raise an intuitive eater is it it's out right now where can people i'm assuming wherever books are sold <laughs> yeah amazon goodreads bookshop mm-hmm. awesome well thank you Right. Definitely. Um, well, thank you so much, Amy and Sumner. Um, do you guys have social media? Where can people follow you? Um, I, um, you can find my website at prospernutritionwellness.com. I'm a dietitian in Bellingham, Washington. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram at Amy is talking or Twitter at Amy Severson. And I'm there occasionally. So, yeah. And you can find me on Instagram at intuitive eating RD. Great. That's a, you got quite the handle. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much. And that is it for this episode of Betches Moms Podcast. Guys, please don't forget to rate, review, follow us on Apple and Spotify. All of your reviews mean so much to us. And follow Betches Moms on Instagram. And if you have any more questions for Sumner and Amy, you can send them to us. Maybe we'll have a follow-up. Who knows? Um, We'll do some stuff on social. And you can follow me at Aileen. Follow Betches Moms. Brittany likes to keep her life private (laughs) for reasons I don't understand. No, I'm just kidding. I get it. And remember, there are no rules on this podcast. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right, Regina? Please stop talking. The Betches Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram and send us your emails to moms at betches.com. Betches.
Betches.